0: You are listening to Spacetime Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandik, who talk about philosophy, science, and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. There is one more thing. It's been emotional. I should mining, mining, space high, bay, mine
1: All right, we're doing it. So, hello everybody, welcome to Space Time Mind. I am Pete Mandic from William Patterson University, and with me as always is my co-host, the Browniest.
2: The Browniest, that's me.
1: (laughs) And our guest today is Joseph Ledoux, neuroscientist from New York University and uh, author of... uh, Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. Books are The Synaptic Self, that's from 2002 and then a 1996 book, The Emotional Brain, and also the leader of the rock and roll band, The Amygdaloids.
3: Long live The Amygdaloids.
1: <laughs> and everyone in The Amygdaloids is a neuroscientist, right?
3: Well, um, not quite. I mean, the original lineup was um, me, Daniela Schiller, who was a postdoc in Liz Phelps's lab, so yes, she was a neuroscientist, and Nina Curley, who was Daniela's research assistant, so it was three neuroscientists and Tyler Volk, who's a biologist, an environmental biologist. Okay. Uh, and then the bass players rotated over the years. Through. We've had three or four different bass players. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think. Well, besides Nina, none of the others have been uh, neuroscientists or scientists even.
2: Well, Amanda had some training in psychology or something, right?
3: She had uh, an undergraduate degree in neuropsychology from UCL, so she, but she hasn't done anything with that, uh, really. Current bass player is Colin Dempsey, and he's um, an engineer, so he's got some kind of science connection.
2: Cool, very cool. And so, yeah, Danielle is a great drummer. I, I really like her drumming and her science as well. Her lab's been producing some really cool stuff. Yep, yep, she just. I went. saw some, uh, some stuff on uh, some optogenetics stuff that uh, is coming out of over there of her lab? What? Uh, maybe it's not. Yeah, I thought it was. Is it not?
3: No, she does. She's doing imaging, human imaging. So, uh, uh, we do optogenetics in my lab, but
2: uh, oh, right. Okay. So I I saw I thought I saw this piece um, in the New Yorker maybe that was th- talking about this, but it was that was about your the stuff from your lab, the optogenetics no, turning uh, oh,
3: Okay. That
2: particular reference. But yeah, that was a great
3: article on Danielle in the New Yorker.
2: Yeah, that was very cool. So, so what are you guys doing with the optogenetics over there? I mean, you're you're turning off and on these proteins, and then that's uh, getting the rats to freeze. Well, in
3: the-, the first thing we we uh, we got into it pretty early. We published a paper in 2010. Um, lead author was uh, Josh Johansson, and what Josh wanted to do was uh, uh, test the Hebbian hypothesis, which had never really had been tested, surprisingly behaviorally. and You know, it's been hard to do because it requires this co-activation of the uh, of a neuron by uh, uh, different inputs and it's hard, to, the US being a kind of punctate, well let me explain what we do. We do conditioning in, in rats, so the rat hears a tone paired with the shock and the, uh, the tone then elicits a freezing response, so that's kind of the, the backbone of the experimental model we use. And then we go into the brain and try to figure out how that works. Um, so the have hypothesis would be, in that case, that the tone is a weak stimulus. The shock is a strong stimulus. So the, the occurrence of the shock changes something about the way the tone is processed at the same neurons. So the strong stimulus makes the weak stimulus stronger so that the weak can now activate those cells. So, um, what we're able to do is create learning in rats without any kind of external um, driving stimulus, no unconditioned stimulus. In other words, there's no shock in the experiment at all. Hmm. What happens is the rat hears a tone, and while he's hearing the tone, you optogenetically activate the part of the brain that we know the tone and the shock come together in. So that happens to be the lateral nucleus of the amygdala. So you activate cells in the lateral amygdala while the rat's hearing the tone, and then when you give the tone to the rat later, he freezes as if he had been given a real shock. So all you're doing is depolarizing cells in the lateral amygdala while the rat's hearing a tone, and that's enough to create the learning, because it allows that uh, that tone to now flow through the circuitry in a way that it couldn't do before the optogenetic activation, or in a way that it couldn't do before you gave a US, depending on what you're doing. And then we did all kinds of other experiments where we would uh, use very weak conditioning with a real shock, real unconditioned Mm -hmm. stimulus, and combine that with uh, weak optogenetic activation, neither one of which is enough to create learning, but together they summate to allow the learning to take place. So it's pretty convincing that the unconditioned stimulus, one effect of the unconditioned stimulus is the uh, activation of these amygdala cells strongly so that it can produce the molecular changes that allow the, the tone CS to enter the circuitry and activate the responses
2: now is that reversible uh, via optogenetics or not uh,
3: they- yeah I mean there way you know normally in in um, in life you reverse it by extinction so you hear the tone over and over again and it gets weaker um, and you can do that with uh, optogenetics too I mean you would just we could, you'd give the tone over and over to weaken the, the connection. But um, there are other ways to, I think that there are studies now that are looking at trying to manipulate the extinction process itself in the amygdala. Um, I'm pretty sure someone has done that opt- genetically, but I, don't, I can't remember uh, exactly what's going on. Joe, there can been you a say- lot of studies since then.
1: Could you it's say a, a, a really uh, briefly what optogenetics is? What's right. the what's the opto part and what's the genetic part?
3: Yeah, we uh, just jump past that. Light. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh,
3: the optogenetics is uh, the idea is that you take a, a light sensitive molecule uh, from green algae and use that uh, uh, use that as a way to uh, uh, respond to light basically. So and you couple a virus to that and the virus is atta- has attached to it uh, something that manipulates the uh, cell membrane so it allows uh, action potentials to occur when when that molecule is activated. So what you do is if you shine a light on that complex of the, uh, the light-sensitive molecule uh, which is called channel rhodopsin uh, and the, um, uh, the, the channel modulator that, that opens the membrane to allow the action potentials to occur, um, then you, uh, when you shine the light on that, you turn it on. And if it's inside cells, it causes, you know, so that the no. action potentials occur. Are- yeah, so in order to get that to work, you have to have it attached to a virus which you then inject into the part of the brain you're interested in, in our case the lateral nucleus of the amygdala. So it sits in there and the virus transports it inside the cells. Uh, And once it's in the cells, then you just let it sit there and kind of cook for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then you introduce a very fine fiber optic cable, really, really tiny, you can hardly see it, uh, into that part of the brain and do a, a millisecond or a 10 millisecond flash of, of uh, light. And those cells then will fire action potentials in response to that light.
1: So this is not, so you're not like opening up the whole skull of the animal. This is a relatively invasive procedure. Well,
3: you have to make a little hole in the skull to put these things into. Yeah. The cannula? The cannula, yeah. To, yeah. In, to introduce the virus and,
2: with the optogenetic thing in it, but also to then shine the light. Right, but it's. I mean, these are these are tiny little holes compared to. uh, It's not like big craniotomy. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So so now is this because it is invasive? This kind of procedure probably wouldn't be realistically used for treating post traumatic stress or something like that, or do you envision?
3: At this point, not PTSD, but it's certainly being considered as a a viable option in the whole field of deep brain stimulation. uh, You know, which is being used for depression and. um, uh, Parkinson's and so forth, and because it's really no more. Well, I guess you know, depends on what your view of uh, genetic manipulations are. I mean, it's not really altering the genetics of the brain. What you're doing is using um, a dead virus to uh, carry the, uh, the the molecule inside the cell. So I don't know who, who wants you know viruses dead or alive in their brain, but
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, that's one way to pitch it. Brain virus, <laughs> come and get your brain virus. <laughs> so, it's,
0: you
3: know, I think it's uh, it's we know from from animal work that it's safe, and th- you know, there's all kinds of gene therapy now being used in people. That's basically what this is. Yeah.
2: Interesting. So, uh, so you do think that? I mean, because I know like Heather Berlin does some of this deep brain stimulation stuff, and that it has been shown to be very useful for people with very uh, deep depression and so forth.
3: Um, I mean, it's still still kind of controversial. You have some that are really strong proponents of it, and then you have other people that say, well, you know, it works a certain percentage of the time, but you know, how far is that above statistical chance and all that? So I don't know. I mean, it's it's very controversial, but. um, the peop, you know, it's hard work to do also, so the, there are positive results that are very encouraging. Uh, it's just hard to get enough data to really kind of amass the right kind of uh, uh, backbone for those, those steps.
2: Now, are you guys doing any kind of work? Because I was reading some stuff where there's um, a, a certain kind of drug that can be taken that will uh, interfere with the encoding of memories. Um, so that they, they get weakened in long-term memory. Do right. you guys do stuff like that? Well, we, we've we been doing, uh, you know, in, in 2000 we published a paper on
3: memory reconsolidation. Right, yeah, that's, yeah right. So that, that, that became kind of famous as a, you know, memory erasure kind of experiment. And the movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, came out about four years after that study was published. Um, and it's been uh, proposed that maybe they, you know, read about this, or you know, Charlie Kaufman was the the uh, screenwriter. And so it's been proposed that maybe they knew something about this and it had something to do with it. It was a very similar idea where you you have memories and you want to get rid of them, so you go to somebody who zaps the brain, and so they would recall, they would tr- retrieve the memories in, in the uh, the main character played by Jim Carrey, um, and each time they would he would uh, remember his girlfriend, they would zap his brain, and, and right that memory. I mean, we're, do, we're doing the same sort of thing in the, in the rats where we give them the tone and the shock, and then um, when they hear the tone later, we uh, follow that with an injection of a protein synthesis inhibitor in the lateral amygdala where we think the memory is uh, being stored and formed and stored. And when the rat hears the tone the next day, you know, he no longer shows any kind of freezing or other reaction to the tone.
2: See so, that—that's interesting because they do initially form a memory, and then okay, it's yeah, forming the me- and interfering with the re-encoding of that memory that you somehow—that's
3: right. So they form the memory. You then give you retrieve the memory by presenting the tone, and then um, you give the drug afterwards. But they show the memory during that tone retrieval trial, right? right? So they've got it at that time in the short-term sense, but then that re- short-term retrieved memory doesn't persist has a long-term memory anymore. So, you know, this work was based on an earlier um, body of work called consolidation of memory, and it was shown in the 1960s that when you um, uh, when you're forming a memory like this, the brain has to synthesize proteins at the storage site. So, the uh, if you block protein synthesis right after you learn something or right after a rat learns something then the the rat has the memory for a few hours but not the next day or or beyond. So short-term memory is not converted into long-term memory when you block protein synthesis at the site of storage. So what we found was that you also need this protein synthesis process after the retrieval of a memory. Now this was also discovered in the 60s, but uh, it got pushed under the rug Because it didn't fit with the consolidation view, which was that every time you form a memory, that is the when you form a memory, that is the memory you always retrieve later. It's always the same memory. You're constantly just pulling it out. Um, But the reconsolidation view says that every time you use a memory, you have to restore it because it's now a new memory. You know, you and you also have to reconstruct it, and uh, you reconstruct it and you re-encode it as you know because you maybe have. Learn something new in the process of taking it out uh, because it's a new experience. So, you know, for a classic example, someone goes to court to testify about a crime. Instead of talking about what they gave in the police report the day of the crime, they talk about what they read in the newspaper because they, you know, the reading the paper retrieves the memory and then that gets stored as the real thing and they talk about that as if that's what they experienced.
1: How about uh, between long? long periods uh, long periods between uh, retrieval incidents so you know i I, I learned something I memorized something and then I don't access that for maybe three years right. is there do you think there's reconsolidation happening in between during that that three year period
3: uh, reconsolidation is dependent on the retrieval of the memory so if the okay. memory's not being retrie- you know you could say well there's maybe some kind of uh, um, Preconscious or the like sub-threshold retrieval going on, and that may be true in sleep and dreaming and so forth. Uh, so, but we don't really know. Uh, okay. But in general, if you can have a memory that ha- that is fifty years old that you've never, you know, retrieved, right, then retrieve it at this point and then require reconsolidation. Gotcha. That, the the idea that every this happens in every memory every time you retrieve is probably the extreme point of view. I mean, We now know that memories that are really well-consolidated and you know, over-rehearsed and so forth are less susceptible. Uh, and what, what seems to be key is that during the retrieval time something new, some new information has to be introduced. So uh, we recently showed that in a in a paper where we took memories that were very very strongly encoded during the original learning um, by pairing the tone and the shock, which is always what we do, and then we, um, we gave the, uh, the retrieval trial was no longer just a, a simple tone, but it was a tone shock pairing. So it was another conditioning trial. This happened, you know, weeks after the original learning, but what we did was we either gave the the shock at the normal time when it would occur, or at a time earlier or later than it would occur. And so you create a mismatch between the expectation of when the U.S. is going to occur and when it actually occurs, or prediction error, as it's sometimes called. And when you do that, even very strong memories now undergo reconsolidation because there's new information.
2: Very Very interesting. Okay. So can I ask you, too, about this? Because I've heard the distinction between uh, memory uh, erasing and memory dampening yeah where as far as I understand that distinction memory dampening is kind of keeping the semantic or propositional content of the memory but sort of dampening the emotional like so for instance, if you're in a traumatic episode of a fire and your you know dog died in the fire you you would still have the memory of the dog dying in the fire just be less emotionally right. damaging or something so is, is this sort of a, a distinction that you guys
3: yeah know, so the, I mean that's actually it's, it's sort of good news that that's what seems, we don't really know, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions here, but that that seems to be one possible way that things are going to go, um, because the, uh, I mean almost all of the work in rats involves this kind of you know shock-related uh, thing, so you're getting the kind of affective component of it, that's mainly what you're studying. Um, in humans, um, the uh, Uh, when when these kinds of studies have been done. There haven't been a lot of them at this point yet, um, because it's just hard to do, find the right drug and all that. Um, But there is some evidence that the people still remember the event, but they just aren't bothered as much by it. that's actually good because when we first published this there was a kinda of big brouhaha president the uh, you know, the Bush um, bioethics committee got on to <laughs> it and said ah oh, you're messing with memory this is terrible uh, you know, every life is messing with memory right this is the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, but anyway so we, um, we took it seriously and we started doing a lot of experiments to try and test uh, whether that was true and whether it was a problem was I guess what we really addressed was the uh, a comment by a trauma therapist saying that, well, let's say you have a Holocaust victim who's lived for I don't know fifty years with these memories, and all of a sudden you erase her memory of the concentration camp. Right. Well, what would happen to the personality of that person because it's been right. encoded in that way for so long? But um, first of all, the, these techniques are not that powerful, right? And uh, for better or worse, they can't do that. Uh, mm-hmm. But we did a lot of experiments to show that we. Basically what happens is the part of the memory that's active during the retrieval is most susceptible. So if you had a very complex human memory, you couldn't just you know, present one little component of it you know, uh, and eliminate the whole complex semantic structure of it, right? Because it's just a big, complicated thing. Um, uh, and we tested that by creating more complex memories in rats where they had um, you know, a memory would have several parts. And then we would reactivate one part. And when we reactivated that part, the other parts remained intact.
2: So, so what do you mean by several parts? Do you mean something like they get a shock in one area of the location and, as well as another area of their habitat or something like um, that?
3: Well, what we did was we gave, um, um, we had a, a situation where the rats would be exposed to uh, a shock. But different, several different tones were paired with that shock. I see. Okay. And so normally e- any tone later would reactivate that memory uh, or a memory. But when you um, then test one tone and block it, the other two are intact, but that one is disruptive. I see. Right. Okay. And, and we did things like second order conditioning, where you've got a um, first you condition the tone and the shock. And then you use that tone as the unconditioned stimulus for a fresh tone, which hasn't been conditioned at all.
0: Mm.
3: And you, so you have a chain of, of connections, and you know, depending on where you block in that, which component of that sequence you block, you can affect some, but not all of the, the memory.
2: Interesting. Uh,
3: hmm. And that's – this kind of work is what that uh, article in, in The New Yorker on Daniela Schiller was all about her. Right. While well, there was a concentration camp uh, victim, and she's been doing all this research on memory erasure, and so it's all about that whole story.
2: Yeah, and, and I, th- I think that there was, in that President's Bioethics Council, because I teach a neuroethics class, and so okay. we read that that particular one and the students i mean the students always react in a kind of predictable way that oh you have to learn from your experiences even if they're traumatic and that it's cheating somehow to have them dampened or, or you know erased right. and and then you bring all the regu- you know so what's the difference between that and the holocaust survivor who just drinks themselves to the to the point <laughs> they don't remember anything is i or mean one who goes to therapy Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, they thought there I mean, it's, it's what I tend to find is they think therapy is honest work, but they think right. that taking some kind of drug or a neuro thing is not hmm. honest in some sense. I don't. I don't understand that to be honest with you. But that's so, the yeah. reaction you get a lot.
1: Drinking <laughs> is hard work. <laughs> a
3: lot of hard work. So uh, my collaborator at NYU, Liz Phelps, who uh, was Daniela's mentor for her postdoc and did all this. Uh, they've done a lot of this work. Um, they followed up on another study we did which was uh, which did not involve drugs but involved the same basic idea and this was a study that uh, Marie Mulfield did in my lab which was to um, give rats exposure therapy which is standard, uh, you know, standard um, business if you're a therapist you have someone who's afraid of something so you gradually expose them to the thing they're afraid of until it weakens um, and then this is, you know, this is like the bread and butter of many therapeutic approaches. Right. Um, the problem is that the, it's temporary, so the memory kind of always pops back up. It's not a permanent uh, treatment, you know, so it, it's effective for a while, but, you know, it's less effective outside the office than inside the office, and even over time outside the office it weakens. Through either spontaneous recovery, you know, Pavlov discovered this originally that uh, that, that conditioned responses will spontaneously just come back even after they've been successfully extinguished. Um, is that Pavlov's dog back there?
2: Yeah, yeah Frankie uh, doesn't breaking, like Pavlov talk about Pavlov. Frankie always talks about Pavlov. <laughs> uh, She's a Skinner uh, fan because he picked on pigeons, you know. So.
3: <laughs> it would be, uh, we we were Marie was testing uh South she sort of accidentally discovered that if she did exposure therapy in the rats in a slightly different way, I mean normally you just give the the tone over and over and over again and then the rats would stop freezing. Um, and then when you do it that way it always comes back, it pops back up. Um, so, But she found, for some reason, I forget exactly what what it was, but for some reason she had to introduce a break between the first trial and the second trial of extinction. And so there's about a ten minute window in there in which nothing happened. And when when you do that uh, and then test the rats later, it never comes back. Huh. So it's it's like a permanent treatment that in that
2: sense. So so you give the extinction and then there's a like a consolidation period or something? And then
3: no, so what it is, is done. it's so if we go back to the reconsolidation experiment you have a four hour window in which to change memory after retrieval, because that's the time in which protein synthesis has to do its thing. Um, So the protein synthesis process is triggered by the retrieval trial, and you've got four hours to stop that from happening or to facilitate or whatever you're going to do. So what we think happened during this, uh, this behavioral treatment that she did was um, the first trial is the trigger of a reconsolidation trial, and then it takes 10 minutes to kick in the protein synthesis process, and then you've got your four hours to complete it. because if, if she did uh, oh. if she did one trial or extinction and waited 10 minutes and then test it later after doing sorry, one trial of extinction, wait ten minutes, then do all the rest of extinction, completing within four hours, and then testing later, it never comes back. But if she does one does one trial, waits six hours before doing the same thing extinction, it has it comes back. Oh, I see. Oh. So you've got to complete it within the reconsolidation window, right? And so the idea is that the first trial retrieves the memory and kicks in the process. um, And then the other trials are instead of giving a drug, which would block the memory, the other trials are simply changing the meaning of the memory, right? And that's what gets stored, because it's now reconciled. You're storing the new information.
2: Right, and the new information is that it's harmless.
3: That's right. So in reconsolidation, what you're doing is you retrieve the memory. Lock protein synthesis, uh, and so you're storing since nothing happened during that retrieval, you're storing that as safe,
1: right?
0: Wow.
3: But here now what you're doing uh, is changing the meaning rather than by giving a drug, you're simply changing the meaning by extinguishing it. And well, that's then, very cool. And so the, the amazing thing is, so Danielle and Liz uh, and, and Marie did this in humans as well in the laboratory, you know, just like conditioning in people, and they got the same result. Exactly wow. the same time parameters. And then the, these guys at NIH, I think it was either NIH or NIDA uh, and, and Chinese collaborators did this in drug addicts. So they took cocaine addicts and uh, exposed them to relapse cues, paraphernalia, or whatever, and um, then, um, uh, then, then extinguished those cues, either in the traditional way or in this one stimulus break Complete it within four hours, but not more than four hours, and the addicts uh, no longer relapse
2: in the presence of the cues. Wow! And that and that's even true if the cues are outside the lab, so they go home and they see. It's a laboratory study, so I don't I don't know if uh, you know how well it works. Yeah, because I know those kind of relapse cues are very specific to location. A lot of times, Um, you go back to your old neighborhood, and suddenly you want to use that type of stuff, right? Yeah. but that's that. I wonder why this isn't made more of. This sounds like a really dramatic and exciting.
3: It's in the news, but uh, so you know, it, it had an impact. Um, but yeah, it's, that's you know, awesome. it's interesting that you can do these kind of little, you know, crazy experiments in rats, and all of a sudden it's really. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> can I ask you just something? Because you, you talk about fear a lot, um, and and that's you know that's fine. Uh, but you you say that you're studying the emotions. So I wonder, do you take fear as like a prototypical emotion, or do you see it as having in common with other emotions, or how do you see that fitting into the whole bundle of emotions?
3: Well, uh, we might need a whole other uh, program. <laughs> okay. I, I've written, I've written two papers uh, recently, one in uh, Neuron in 2012 called Rethinking the Emotional Brain, and one in PNAS uh, just last uh, year called uh, Coming to Terms with Fear. And both of these are on the same theme, which is that um, after studying fear for 30 years, I decided I hadn't been studying fear at all, uh, and that the whole field doesn't study fear. What we're studying is the ability of the brain to detect and respond to threats. And this is, um, this is not emotion. This doesn't exist in the brain to make us feel anything. Uh, it, it's part of uh, just being a living organism. So. You can you see that a you know you know that a uh, a rat will respond to danger a snake will respond to danger a fish a cockroach a bug a worm even a bacterial cell uh, will respond to danger. So you've got a petri dish with uh, bacterial cells living in there. You squirt acid and they all move away. You know they swim away from from the harmful chemical. Um, and you know if you if you really think about it, there are five things that bacterial cells need to do to stay alive. One is to Um, detect and respond to danger. Um, They have to incorporate nutrients and energy sources uh, from their environment. They have to um, balance their fluids, thermoregulate and reproduce. Um, So if you take those five things and put them into a mammalian brain, those are the things that anybody studying that has been studying what we call emotional behavior or motivation or anything, those are the five things that they're drawing upon, those kinds of um, um, activities, you know, sexual behavior, eating, drinking, thermoregulation, uh, defense, and so we've been calling these things emotional behaviors because when people uh, respond to danger, you know, we often feel fear. But the fact is that you can trigger uh, these same kinds of so-called fear responses in people by subliminal presentations of stimuli. So fear is not the um, detection of danger there's no fear involved in a rap detection detecting danger Fear is what happens if you have a brain that's capable of being aware of its own activities uh, and interpreting that uh, situation where the where the other systems are detecting and responding to danger uh, the brain is being aroused feedback is coming in and all of that so it's a kind of um, you know cognitive interpretation you know it, it's my ideas are really not that different from yours it's, um uh, in the emotional brain, synaptic self, um, and many other things I've written since, I talk about the feeling of fear as being, um, you know, the representation in working memory of all these things coming together, all these non-conscious ingredients that are being interpreted uh, and sort of a higher order interpretation of these lower order events.
2: Yeah, so, that's interesting. Um, so, uh, can I? But, but we, off our
1: feet, we, go ahead. We, we need to. Uh, Insert a break point here. Okay, okay. but I'm yeah, glad I we're on this far. topic because I, I wanted to get you on on your stuff about the non-conscious unconscious response systems uh, versus conscious feelings. Uh.
2: Back.
1: Hey, uh, hey, Pete. You didn't didn't say anything interesting while I was gone, did you? (laughs) Uh,
2: You No, I was just asking about a back massager, it turns out, (laughs) in his office. (laughs) Nothing interesting. But can I start off with where where we picked up, uh, where we left off last time? So I thought there was kind of a standard distinction in emotional uh, research or theorizing between an emotion and a feeling. Right. So that an emotion might be the.
3: Yeah, I used to kind of go with that idea. Uh, Tony De Ma- Antonio Damasio also had that idea.
2: Yeah,
3: and I think probably in uh, emotional brain and synaptic self, I talk that way as well. Um, but I, you know, what I found was that the problem is that, uh, and this is what coming to terms with fear is all about. The um, whenever you use the word fear, unless you're really in the know, people think you're talking about fear. you know, the feeling fear, feeling of fear. Yeah. and if same with emotion I mean fear is an emotion so as soon as you start talking about emotion people think you're talking about feelings and um, every time I would give a lecture not by, some often when I would give a lecture to a lay audience I'd be introduced by you know, this is dr. Joseph Ledoux he's discovered uh, X Y and Z about how the brain feels fear and said so, no I've never studied that <laughs> I've never studied how the brain detects and responds to danger not how it feels fear but as soon as you have the word fear, automatically takes you down that that long path with all kinds of surplus meaning and baggage uh, because that's the way people think about it from you know folk psychology, I mean that's just what it is. So my idea is that we should let fear be fear let emotion be emotion and talk about the other things in a more realistic way about the way they really exist and you know the fact that they have this long evolutionary history that go back to the beginning of life these are not things that are there to make us feel anything they're simply things that are there to keep us alive
1: and well. So what's uh, your what's your current terminology for distinguishing between these things just to so uh, keep track in this conversation.
3: So emotions like fear or um, conscious experiences and the non-conscious things that contribute to those conscious experiences sometimes contribute to those conscious experiences are um, survival mechanisms, survival functions. Um, now, see, because you, you've got to be able to, you know, we can be afraid of, uh, of uh, falling in love or the eventuality of death or of uh, not leading a meaningful life. And I doubt the amygdala and all those other parts of the brain are involved in any of that. So fear is not something that erupts or is unleashed from a subcortical circuit. When that circuit is turned on fear is the cognitive interpretation that that is happening
1: yeah so, the experience that you're having so, so the non-conscious thing is like a danger danger detection circuit what's, the, what's a good way of thinking about that or describing it
3: the way to think about it is that you know we, you often get put into a position of having to defend that the brain can do something nonconsciously yeah when that should be the default assumption of what the brain is doing. <laughs> yeah. right. and consciousness is what you have to prove, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if you say, well, the, you know, so-and-so, the rat responded yeah. non conscious which is all I think the rat probably can do, yeah. unless you're talking yeah. about something like creature consciousness, which is a different thing altogether, obviously. Right. Um, yeah. But if you're talking about the conscious experience of fear, the rat is not responding to a cat because he's afraid of the cat. The rat is responding to the cat because he's wired to do that, or because he's had some experience that's wired him to do that. Uh, and
2: right, so you would say they don't feel emotions, then the rat.
3: I don't know what the rat feels, but but it's likely that they don't. I know it. I know that it can respond to danger without feeling emotion, and I know that a person can do that. So I shouldn't be if I if a person can do can jump back from the curb as a bus goes flying by and then feel fear, afterwards. I shouldn't be using the same, um, I, I should be using the same kind of terminology in a rat. Right? In other words, if we don't need fear to explain why a human jumps back from a bus or stops before s- stepping on a snake, why should we explain a rat behavior on the basis of being afraid?
2: Yeah. So can I can I ask you something really fast, or Pete, did you want to ask something? Because I feel like I've been asking a, a lot. Well,
1: I wanted, to, I wanted to get Joe on the topic that we were talking to Brent Brogard about yesterday and that is what's wrong with the model that says that you've got this one thing which could sometimes it's conscious and sometimes it's not conscious and what makes it conscious or not is just there's this extra thing that that's added to it so Uh, I I guess you would disagree with that view, Joe, that that you're not just adding consciousness. I'm not sure
3: what the one thing and the other thing is. uh...
1: Well, I mean, so you've got, one way of describing it is that you've got these uh, danger detection circuits. These are conserved uh, across uh, mammalian species. They're common to human and non-human mammals. Um, And then uh, in the human case, and maybe also in some non-humans, but definitely in the human case, we are sometimes conscious and uh we have these these conscious emotions these conscious fears and one kind of model and and it, it says that what the consciousness is is you're just adding this extra thing in in addition to having activation in this danger detection circuit you also have this uh cognitive yeah. uh state um,
0: right. Uh yeah
3: i mean so my my idea is that whatever you guys decide consciousness is <laughs> when you're afraid of the, when when that, when danger information invades that thing or is attended to by that thing that you guys are interested in, that's when you feel fear.
2: So, so and uh, for you it's working memory, which working is... Working
3: memory, uh, higher order theory, uh, global workspace, you know, all of those are compatible with, with my view. I don't care how that gets sorted out. So, whatever that, an- the answer to all that is, that's what fear is. It's a representation of this other stuff in there.
1: So, so it sounds like you're not actually uh, taking sides on the on this issue that that we were uh, arguing about yesterday. Um, we were talking to Britt Brogard yesterday, and 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 she was saying that 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 the model that I was sketching was a bad model. That that this adding something extra to get conscious fear is just not the way it works. There's two completely different states. You're not just simply adding a cognitive component or taking something and, and putting it into the very same thing into working memory to get the conscious state. It mm-hmm. sounds, so it sounds like now you're saying you're kind of neutral about that.
3: No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, on your side.
1: That, oh, I see.
3: That uh, I don't think that you can be... My, I, I have a very simple idea which is that we don't need an extra kind of consciousness for emotion. We only we only need one kind. It's hard enough to figure out one kind of consciousness, right? So whatever, let's say, let's assume that that whatever that one kind of consciousness thing is, that uh, it's used to make us feel emotions as well as to uh, have a uh, conscious perception of an apple. Gotcha. It's just different inputs, ingredients that are put into consciousness that are attended to, uh, and so forth. Gotcha. Yeah.
2: So, but in your, in your, in your. Uh, I mean I've read some stuff by you and you seem like I thought you said that you were you like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex because it's where working memory is located in that unless something gets into working memory it doesn't count as conscious but now it sounds like you're saying well that's one model but you'd also be happy if it was a global workspace theory or higher thought theory or uh, something else but as long as it's working, yeah, like I mean,
3: work your, I mean the, all those things involve prefrontal parietal you know right? right. right. Um, so I'm just using working memory <clears throat> I mean I think wouldn't working memory be part of higher order theory? I mean, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, it's part of it, um, absolutely. But uh, it's not part of. Well, it is. Well, okay. So here's a. I mean, the difference between like global workspace theory and a higher order thought model involves um, uh, like which areas are going to be. Implicated. So, global workspace theory says, "Oh, it could be any part of the cortex, basically." or At least that's the way Bars puts it. Um, so, hippocampus can be involved, any part of the cortex at right, all. Right, it's
3: part of the reentrant, right? It's it's part of the the, the rebroadcasting thing, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. it starts, exactly. doesn't it? Start from attention and then rebroadcast. I mean, I, I don't think those are really incompatible. They're just like kind of different versions of something similar. Um,
2: I mean, yeah well here's one way to make here's one way to make the the them incompatible because on a global workspace model it's a lot of people interpret that as it's simply being broadcasted which makes it conscious right uh, whereas on the higher order thought model it has to be accessed right. Right. uh for it to be conscious not merely accessible but actually encoded somewhere and that seems like a pretty big difference yeah so Yeah. What's, not, you think, what's your view about that are you, are you someone I mean, I'm, I'm really i don't work on that it's not like i work on this other stuff
3: underneath the hood, and I'm just kind of um, a parasite on whatever consciousness is. Uh, <laughs> so you don't
2: have any feelings about overflow or whether there's more in consciousness
3: than. I, I, just, do I don't know. I just, um, you know, I'm writing a new book called Anxious, and uh, where I put a lot of these ideas into context um, related to fear and anxiety, um, and you know, I. I Kind of go through different the different theories of uh, leading theories of consciousness, <clears throat> you know, Ned, and first order theory and all of that. Right. Uh, I, I don't want to get into that because it's too complicated to. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't understand how you can be conscious of something you're not aware of, but let's that's, that's not go into that.
0: <laughs>
2: well, I wanted to go into that, but all right. <laughs> because I, would, I would actually, on, on certain days, i defend that view. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, well, I don't know, you could be conscious of something that you're not aware of, but, uh, I'm not sure why that's that's problematic on the face of it. But if, I mean...
1: Um, Wait, I'm not sure what you guys are saying. So conscious of something, but not... a aware of the very same thing? Or?
2: Well, like take Joe's example of the of the rat. So the rat um, detects some danger in its environment and freezes, yeah. um, uh, but it's not, or at least it's prob- plausible that it doesn't have the higher order kind of mechanisms which would be involved in it being aware of that um, uh, internal state of itself. So that would be one argument for why the rat doesn't feel fear but merely oh, detects yeah. danger or something like that.
3: Yeah, you right? People like Jack Pink's up who would you know who, who basically have a first-order theory of yeah. phenomenal emotional consciousness. Which says that uh, you know the amygdala, the periaqueductal gray, wherever uh, he's interested in, in the brainstem is um, that's where your fear is. So the same circuit that controls fear responses is feeling fear. Right. And um, so you I, mean, know, I don't
2: agree with that view. I just don't know why. What's uh, what's like. It's so strange about it? Well, the only thing strange is we have
3: no idea how, you know, a circuit in the – why this circuit in the brainstem would be conscious versus the one next to it is not conscious. I mean, there's right. no explanation of, of what would make you be phenomenally aware of the activity in the periaqueductal gray grade, but not in the, you know,
2: nucleus next to it. Isn't that just a neuroscientific problem, though? I mean, can is isn't that something that science can investigate? The difference between their activity is going to matter in some sense, or
3: uh, yeah. But you know, the problem is, how do you ever know what a rat is conscious of?
2: Yeah. So I mean, you could you start with humans and generalize out. I mean, to me, it seems like the same kind of problem with like uh, tables and chairs. So you know, the the paradigm case is you look at a table and you're conscious of the table. There's the table. Right. Um, but then what about when you're not looking at the table? Is the table still there? I tend to think, yeah, of course the table is still there, um, but how do I know that? I, I, I can't. Every time I look at it, I see it, but I can't really know about it when I'm not looking at it, and I feel like that's kind of a similar… Uh,
3: but I, I can, you can have me in the room, and I can say, yes, it's, it's there while you're looking away.
2: Right, so when no one's looking at it, so when, uh, you know, I, I was thinking of myself by myself, but you're right. So it's what, if, we're, if none of us are looking at the table, um, then I assume that we think that it's still there in some right. sense, um, but, no, but no one's accessing it, uh, no one's observing it, and that doesn't seem to matter to the table very much. So right. why couldn't consciousness be like that? Why couldn't it be there's a certain thing in the brain when it's, that's what consciousness is? It's a first sort of thing, possibly. Um, and when you're not looking at it, it's still there doing the same thing that it was. I mean, I, I don't agree with that view. T- I mean, right. I'm just—I right. don't—I don't know what what would be. I used to think that it might be like logically um, inconsistent, but I, now I I'm not so sure what's so inconsistent about it.
0: Yeah.
3: Well, you know, I, again, I try to keep things as, as simple as possible. I think there's pretty good evidence for cortical systems having something to do with our ability to. Access our states and be aware of them, and so forth. Yeah. And I just want to uh, work with that as the hypothesis for how we become aware of the fact that we're in danger. Can't see how much we can explain about it that way, without yeah. having to assume that this animal is uh, has consciousness because its periaqueductal gray is active, but a lizard, which also as a pereiopod. Gray is not kind. You know, there's no dividing line,
2: uh, and right? Because no, I agree. I, I agree. So for me, what pushed me over the edge when I I remember in grad school, I came to New York um, being pretty much fully convinced by Ned uh, that you know um, he gave this old old paper of his. He gave this example of hearing this jackhammer in the background, and then you're doing something else, and then you go, oh, you sort of get this feeling like you were hearing it all along, even though when you weren't attending to it and you know that could be a memory confound uh and there there are other explanations but i always thought that that's kind of an intuitive idea that the thing is there like a picture and you're looking over here but the picture is still right. there um but and so uh what pushed me over though to the other side was thinking about what phenomenal consciousness really is what what it is is there being something that is like for the thing in question mm-hmm. and once you bring in the fact that it's for the thing in question then i think that first order views really suffer, because you can't make sense of how um, something in there could be for me in the right way, experienced by me, but not experienced by me. That starts to sound like a contradiction, right. and so it's uh, I, it's more of those kinds of considerations that tend that tend me to say, look, Ned, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, uh, you. you uh, but at the same time, um, I see what he's talking about.
1: <laughs> <So It's, laughs> I, most days, I think of this as kind of just a pointless verbal dispute. It seems like it's it's pretty clear that there that there is something that we could call like a first order sensitivity. The organism is sensitive to, or maybe even representing uh, things in its body or things in its environment. And some organisms are able to have some kind of higher order sensitivity, um, some kind of a a representation or or or. Sensitivity to its first-order sensitivities, and um, there are ways of introducing words like consciousness into that that are very clear and very disciplined. Where you say, like, okay, there's first-order consciousness without a higher-order consciousness, or first-order awareness without a higher-order awareness, and you're and you're just like very clear and careful all along that what you mean by consciousness or awareness are these kinds of of sensitivity or kinds of encoding of of information or kinds of of representation. And beyond that, like what there is to argue about like I don't see what what there is
2: I, I think what there is to argue about is whether or not there's more so if you think about working memory um, the the thing to argue about is whether the experience of the person or animal uh, outstrips what's encoded in working memory or whether it's confined to what's in working memory and then you have to explain away the feeling that there's more. Um, you know, the refrigerator, a light illusion people appeal to here. Um, that, you know, you'll, you think it's conscious just because every time you look at it, it's conscious. Um, okay. So, but the, the thing to debate about it, I agree with terminology is boring, but the thing to debate about is what is the total experience of the person like? Is it like the way it seems to us or not? Because it certainly seems that, you know, I have a very detailed visual but representation. But now you're not, of the using
1: the word, you're not using the word consciousness or awareness. I agree
2: with you That is verbal I use that word, but there's still something to argue about, which was my point. The thing to argue about is what the experience of the thing like? So that's consciousness. What is it like for the creature? Is it like the way it seems or is it not like the way it seems? The way it seems is that I have details everywhere. <laughs> that's the way it seems. The visual field is replete or so it appears. Well, I, mean, like.
1: yeah. I there's a way of using seems where, again, it's totally clear and not controversial. Like we we know how it seems in a first-order way to the creature, and we know how it seems in a higher-order way to the creature, and and it's... It's actually yeah. pretty easy to, to figure out like what stuff in the first order is, is yeah. uh, uh, prior is there just prior to working memory and what what stuff gets uh, transmitted to, to working memory.
2: So Pete, look, you're, I don't know what you're doing here. So do you do you think that right now when you're looking around that you have a a, a visual experience? Do you believe that?
1: <laughs> yeah, and what I what right. I mean and by is that it, is
2: it detailed? Like, is it filled in at every
1: point? Does it does it seem to me like it's filled in at every point? Just is it? That's the
2: question. What is it like to be you? Is it
1: detailed or not? Well, I think detailed. we can ask that question in terms of like what what information is encoded, and it, and a, what information is encoded in these first order ways, and what information is encoded in these uh, higher order ways.
2: Yeah, but that we're talking about what it's like for you.
1: We'll see. Now you're introducing a third term, which is this "what it's like" term.
2: Yeah, I've been using it all along. That's what consciousness is.
1: <laughs> well, I think I think that's garbage. The, the phrase "what you it's good. like"
2: it, it, well, there's your problem. That's awesome. what zombies always say. <laughs> Baggage. <laughs> I, I think it's it's ridiculous to say that you if, what it's like for to be you is It's a very clear. It's it's very clear what that means. Yeah, right. be,
1: it's it's all these representations and all this information. We could talk about what the first order information is. We could talk about what the higher order information is. Yeah. A, end of story.
2: No, because they conflict with each other, and then there's a question about which one accurately captures your experience. They all do. They don't because some
1: the, the first order one has a some bunch of them.
2: details in it and the higher order one doesn't. One of them has to be right with respect to your experience. They can't both be right. You cannot simultaneously have Would a You're not defining
1: what experience is. Yeah, what it's like for you. I just have. <laughs> what it's like for me in a first order way or in a higher order way? Just full stop. Which, which one of those two
2: things captures what it's like to be you? That's the question. All of them do. They don't because they conflict <laughs> with each other, so they can't.
1: Uh, Since so we not, have an impasse, I think.
2: Yeah, that you're We're being obstinate. Look, it, it's a very simple question. It's a very simple point. The very simple no, point know, is this: there's asked. something that it's like to be you. I agree. And then we have two representational systems in the brain, yep. which have conflicting information. Yeah. So they cannot both capture what it's like to be you. That's well, impossible. I'm okay. Because I, then would be contradictory. Percent. You I and contradict you could be in a. Vis- You'd be in a visual state which says, I see everything and yet I only see this select thing consciously.
1: That Why can't case. the representational system have representations that are con- contradict each other? Uh,
2: because you don't have experience that contradicts you. What? You don't yeah, see like something square and circular?
1: The waterfall illusion is an example of a contradictory experience. I experience the water, like this wall is being stationary and I also experience it as moving. Yeah, that's interesting, right? No, I, mean, I
2: don't really experience. I I differ the about wall, the phenomenology. The real there I get.
1: Wall can't be like that. But why why can't a representation have contradictions in it? Why can't? Um,
2: right. So the question. So if if, uh, if you were to show that in the brain there's a you know representation in the first order areas of a stationary thing and a representation in the higher order areas of something moving and those to combine to give you an experience of stationary and moving, then your point would be well taken. The question is, where are those representations in, in the area which is a uh, rep- representing first order er- areas or in the first order areas themselves? Because there is a certain way your experience is, and then the question is, which representations in the brain capture that?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm yeah, cool with so that.
2: that's yeah yeah that's that's what all I've been pushing for. Um, and, and you, uh, also,
1: you have a, you're also a what it's like junkie
2: uh I'm a conscious human being so yeah yeah <laughs> so are you you just don't pretend like play games
1: well I'm not I'm not going to jump on the slippery slope that leads to dualism and mysterianism neither will I yeah you are yeah you are oh, okay
2: anyway so Joe you, you you're wisely sitting this one out I see <laughs> do you find uh talk about what it's like useful or not
3: um as a scientist no right you know, because it's, I just, it's hard to, like, convert that into neurons and synapses, and, um, um, yeah, so I'm much more comfortable dealing with access and, and
2: those topics. But what about as a person?
3: As a person, yeah, it's, it feels like something, but, uh, um, you know, again, I think that there, there are questions that are scientific and questions that aren't. Uh, for me, animal consciousness—not consciousness is not a scientific question. Um,
2: So, But why not? So how come it couldn't be – so let's suppose we start with humans, and let's say that we find out that working memory is important for consciousness, mm -hmm. um, and maybe even that encoding in working memory is what consciousness is, or attention – I mean, whatever it is, right? Right. Suppose you find out something about humans that's interesting. Why couldn't you then look in animals and see if they had a cognate system and therefore conclude that if they did, they were conscious? So that would be a scientific question, right? Right.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, you could always – you could creep up on it like that, but… You would always be missing that final step of, is it really that, because…
2: Um, but, but isn't that just the way science always works? I mean, you never get conclusive evidence in science. You get you know inductive evidence, which yeah. kind of gives you some reason to accept the conclusion. So uh, why – if you lowered – see, what I feel like is that when people talk about consciousness, they raise the bar of evidence to this absurd high level. Um, whereas if you just keep it at the sort of normal le- standards of evidence in the science, why couldn't you have those kind, that kind of evidence that animals? I have the opposite
3: impression. I feel that when you talk about animal consciousness, you lower the bar so that you can show
1: it.
2: Right. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I guess I see what you're. So th- this, some of this might be like metacognition, right? There's a big debate about whether animals right. have metacognition at all. And there are tons of confounds there, and a lot of people just jump, oh, they're making judgments about their own certainty, uh, these monkeys, so therefore they're metacognizing, and then you right. turns out that, that type of stuff's too quick. Right. Yes. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but I mean the, the, what I meant by raising the bar was that the standards of evidence that would count so even if we did this kind of thing, where you say, "Aha, dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex is what's required. And then you look at a dolphin, and you say they have the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, and it works exactly like ours. Um, and then you say, well, then dolphins are conscious. And then someone says, well, how do you really know that they're conscious? And then you just like give this the same evidence, and you say, well, look, you know, I give the same evidence that this is how the brain detects danger, and of course I don't know it to, with certainty, but I have a lot of good evidence. So why, why, I don't see why the two things aren't on a par there?
3: Because the. Um, the let's take dorsolateral prefrontal cortex alright so um, I don't actually know much about the dolphin dorsolateral prefrontal cortex um, but let's just take monkey a human monkey rat prefrontal right. cortex rat doesn't have a dorsolateral prefrontal cortex right so then people search for all these other things it might be like dorsolateral prefrontal cortex so I think as soon as you get past the primate you run into problems in trying to make those kinds of comparisons. But even in the primate, I mean, the primate brain is very similar to the... non-human primate brain is very similar to the human brain, but you can always, you know, there are differences as well. Um, and it happens to be that the biggest differences are in just those areas that we're interested in here. Right. You know, so... you know <laughs> I think you could, you know, maybe in primates, you can uh, make those arguments, but uh, when you start trying to say, well this area is kind of like the dorsolateral or I I think it's just hard, it's problematic. I like things neater, and so I find explanations that okay, here's here's a hypothesis I want to test because I can see the the pieces and how they could line up uh, uh, without making too many other assumptions. It's really about the other assumptions you want to make. I mean, the other thing about animal consciousness is, you know, they, they, and you go back to the metacognition topic and so forth, the, well, let's just talk about, yeah, um, uh, you know, there, there are, you not only have to get evidence that consciousness is the explanation, but you should also have evidence that the unconscious explanation is not the right one as well, right? And almost no studies do that. You know that it's uh, you start with an assumption of consciousness, and any evidence that is consistent with that proves your point. But you also have to rule out the other alternative, which is that the non-conscious explanations is, is equally good.
2: No, I think that's exactly right, and and so there is. I I, I think what so I wonder if we could reach an agreement if we said that the way that it's often pursued. Uh, animal consciousness isn't sci- isn't done very scientifically, or it's not a scientific question. But that What's it could right? become a scientific question if we, I mean, once we know some more about the brain, then then I mean the the, the problem is that I hear you saying is that we do barely know anything about the human brain, and then we're already making extrapolations to other brains which right. we're not even inside of. Um, so, but but if if we wait is 50 years or so, uh, 100 years if you're pessimistic, well then. What, wouldn't couldn't these questions be transformed into scientifically tractable questions
3: as correlations yeah you get correlative evidence uh, and it's just a matter of is that good enough right yeah you, know, you know I, I mean you
2: don't are, you think that's the same with humans that no, you only have correlative evidence that I'm conscious?
3: but okay it's a different but the standard is different because you know we can talk to each other we have verbal report and mm-hmm. our brains, barring neurological and genetic malfunctions are identical right as a species we have every human has a human brain so functions that I have in my brain you have in your brain by default I mean just that's just the way the thing is wired right, right. but as soon as you start talking about other species it's not exactly like that you know they don't have the same functions we have they certainly don't have language and uh, a lot of people think language is pretty important in all of this
2: they have communicative, communicative skills. So, like, you know, monkeys—they make certain calls depending on where the danger is coming from—the from air, from the ground. So, their language is
3: it's not just it's, language is not just speech. It's a whole kind of cognitive, you know, substructure that changes the way the cortex is working.
1: So we need to insert a break here. And by the way, this is our last break before we break forever. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh man, Pete! One of these days, we're gonna image your brain and find out that no consciousness in there, dude. I'm I'm starting to think that probably there's that we make an assumption that there's like one single level of consciousness um, when there probably isn't. I was thinking about this the other day because you know there are super tasters in the world.
1: Um, Rachel's a super taster.
2: Yeah, super tasters are really interesting, and then also tetrachromats uh, obviously are interesting in the visual um, case. So I wonder if something why maybe there can't be super super conscious experiencers. Uh, Oh, and you're
1: attributing that to yourself?
2: um, No, I'm not attributing it to you, is more what i was doing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My dissertation advisor, uh, philosopher of science, William Bechtel, uh, he always claimed that he never had mental imagery and that when people would talk about mental imagery he had zero idea what they could possibly be talking about.
2: I know, I'm the same
1: way. You ask him the standard sorts of questions about like mental rotation, or you know, picture, you know, imagine an apple, and now tell me, does it have a stem on it? And he would just say, I, I have no idea what you're asking me. Yeah, Richard, That's you're right. the same way. You don't think you have mental imagery? I have zero. Um,
2: I except uh, I, I, with auditory stuff, I can hear melodies in my head. Um, but other than that, I've never understood the imagery
1: debate at all. Wow, I, I think I have really super vivid. Visual imagery, like really intense visual imagery, and I'm puzzled by people that claim that they don't. Yeah, like I, what, I'm tempted Joe, to think they you, don't understand the question.
2: I understand it perfectly. It's just not possible for me to form an image without a visual stimulus. <laughs> wow. Visual Joe, imagery for you, Joe? Are you are you interested in this at all? I have, you know, I think I have it, but it's not
3: like. I I wouldn't describe it the way Pete does, but I wouldn't describe it the way you do either, so I'm somewhere in the middle.
2: Whenever someone tells me to imagine something, I I just hear words, and then I think of propositions and the way that they can be manipulated by entailments. Wow. Yeah, so maybe I have more consciousness than you. But no, you know, because you just have representations which fool you into thinking you're having intense visual imagery, whereas I actually have <laughs> <laughs>
1: experience. You know, your zombie twin was telling me the same thing yesterday. <laughs>
2: exactly. Exactly. Um, Joe, do you think there's any connection between playing music and um, doing science? Or is there any, any benefit of combining them, or is it just so happens that you like to do both?
1: Um,
3: Well, I think it just so happens, it does just so happen that I like to do both. Um, I think you noticed that that piece of nature that came out uh, that I put on Facebook. Um, I said something in there that she asked me that that sort of question about uh, what's the direction of influence science to music or music to science. And, um, you know, I think that... uh, you know giving lectures and doing those kinds of activities on stage definitely having done that many years uh, after I first started trying to play guitar I was more comfortable when I went back to playing guitar later and getting on stage doing that sort of stuff because I just had that kind of practice at the same time uh, you know doing playing music is a different kind of experience than giving a lecture but that kind of uh, uh, looser and more audience-targeted um, uh, stage performance perf- uh, uh, style, I think, also feeds into the lecture style now, so you get a little bit of that from it as well, where it's a little looser when you give the lecture rather than just kind of going through the PowerPoint. So that, there's that kind of thing, but I don't think that's what you're asking. You're asking more about... You know, designing experiments and thinking about problems and stuff. And
2: yeah, and especially the math. So I think that there's a connection between musical uh, understanding, music, and mathematics.
3: I'm a mathematical idiot. So uh.
2: okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there goes that theory. <laughs>
0: yeah, math was never
3: my strong point.
1: And, uh,
0: so. Okay.
1: It's interesting. Your remarks about um, how musical performance influences your lecture style reminds me of. A kind of experience. I I have a lot. Um, you know, I I do uh, visual art in addition to music, and also trying to write philosophy papers and lectures. And I and I I found many times if I get if I get kind of stuck working on one thing, you know, I'm like trying to write a paper, and I just like hit I hit a block, and then I go and I I, I work on writing a song. A right. lot of times, I feel like that helps me get unclogged. Yeah, definitely. Like, I definitely agree with that. About like just switching gears entirely. Right but still trying to be creative. Yeah, um, yeah. You get this cross pollination or something.
2: Well, probably the, you're still working on the other stuff unconsciously.
1: Yeah, yeah. probably. I, mean, I think a
2: lot, a lot of times what happens, because that happens all the time, if you do something that's uh, absorbing in a different way. For me, it's playing video games. <laughs> I spend <laughs> a lot of time on uh, on my Xbox over there. so. Uh, you know I'll, I'll go like I'm playing a game right now it's called Thief, where you sneak around a lot and so it's very absorbing because you have to be very aware of how much noise you're making what shadows are around and if you're in a shadow it's an so, so attention grabbing game in that kind of way and if I'm and you're just um, trying
3: to you're just trying to kill zombies uh, wherever you go yeah exactly
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's true <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with zombies yeah um, <laughs> but I, I think that, uh, that while that's happening, that you're still clunking away on the other stuff unconsciously, though. So I, I think that one of the things you've been saying, Joe, I'm very much on board with, um, which is that people need to pay more attention to the unconscious, um, and that the dynamic unconscious uh, that has been rediscovered lately, not, not the Freudian unconscious, that's a different animal, but this other thing that people are talking about, very powerful, and does a lot more than we think that it does, and consciousness rarely adds what we think it does <laughs> to the process. <laughs> so, uh, and so I was gonna this is one thing because when you're playing on stage, do you have the experience of that when you consciously attend to what you're doing, it tends to mess you up or do you not have that
3: Every time you think about it. You know, everything it's going great and you say, well that's going great and that's when it falls apart.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so some I mean I, I feel that way too. So consciousness gets in the way sometimes. Right. So of course fun. I had an argument with someone about this who told me no that the real mark of an expert is someone who can think about what they're doing and not get messed up while they're doing I would doing never that. claim to be an expert on guitar, so that... Yeah, that's so really maybe we're none of us are experts, exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. Do you guys ever have this experience, though? Uh, you're, you're playing music, um, especially in kind of a, a jam session with, with other musicians, and you feel like uh, you're playing is just a little bit kind of flat, and, and then you tap into something emotional, like you just get, like really uh, dramatic you're feeling an emotion, and uh I presume this is conscious too, and that makes that makes your playing better and and I think objectively better too. you go back and you listen to the recording that. you no. never have that experience of like <laughs> well yeah
2: actually, I think what happens is you you speed up the time when you do stuff like that, and uh you rush the beats when you do stuff like that, and that objectively those things are bad.
1: So you're so you feel like you're better off just being like uh, Vulcan, like just cool and not emotional. Um, Richard, usually
2: when
3: I'm
1: drumming, I'm counting. How about you, Joe? Emotions help or hinder music performance?
3: Um, I think it, you know, again, the, when you when you have that sort of conscious feeling and awareness, you get distracted. Uh, your know, consciousness kind of takes over and the you know the the unconscious systems that were making all of that work get disrupted in a way huh
2: yeah so what? how does that work because i mean on a higher order kind of account consciousness shouldn't really do anything to the first order states except make you aware that they're going on so i wonder what well, it mechanism just
3: kind of, it just desynchronizes in a way you know so that it's not like um a direct influence i would say so much as a resource allocation issue right resources are grabbed by attention and maybe less is available for you know running the coordination of all those unconscious systems you know you got arousal and and all sorts of things that are spritzing things around the brain to keep it all kinda of coordinated when you're in a groove right. But when attention comes in and starts spritzing for other reasons, you know, you kind of desynchronize or uncouple things. I think.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I I, I think of like work like by Marissa and the Karasco lab when I think about this stuff because like uh, when you're attending to the stu- to something focally, the stuff that's outside of your focal attention gets heightened a bit, and so mm. that can tend to mess you up. Like if right. you think if you're focusing, and this is happening to me, if I'm really focusing on the the, the actual rhythm of the bass drum to the snare and the polyrhythm from the um, the other thing then suddenly weirdly enough though the good seems louder to me and it messes me up a little bit because I was focusing on the drums and so those things that you're not attending to get a kind of phenomenal inflation I think even outside of vision in, in, in the auditory cases
1: yeah so so what's the point of music you guys if, if it's better when you're not conscious
2: Well, here's my theory about that is that uh, we like synchronization because um, it's a fundamental element of brain structure and we are brains. Um, So we like to be synchronized (laughs) in frequencies. (laughs) I agree
1: completely. So wouldn't it be better if we just like marched around? (laughs)
2: <laughs>
3: Let's March. Well, there's also the, uh, you know, when, when you're synchronized playing and other people respond to it good because they get synchronized, then that gives you kind of social feedback and makes yeah. you want know, to do it more, too. But isn't it consciously fun? Isn't it? That- it is not that its Or we at least convince ourselves that it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> Depends and on all, who you're playing with because I played with some people who, who they are great musicians but not fun to play because they're so exacting. <laughs> um, you know, so if you're playing with James Brown, you know famously James Brown, you make any mistake, you dock your pay. You know, if you get one <laughs> clam, one sour note, that's money out of your pocket. And those under those conditions, it's not fun; it's a job. <laughs> have, you ever,
1: have you guys ever seen this clip of James Brown where I saw it on a documentary about rock and roll? This multi-episode documentary that was on PBS, and it's this like black and white footage of James Brown with his band, and the drummer made this small mistake and James Brown changes the lyrics that he's singing on the fly <laughs> to b- bitch out the drummer. Yeah, that's it right. <laughs> It's amazing. It's amazing. Have you guys seen that? No, I haven't. No, uh-uh. uh, I'll um, see if I can dig it up on YouTube. It's one of the most amazing things. I just heard this amazing
3: thing about one of these James Brown songs, and I forget which one it is now, but um, they kind of, to give it an edge, they kind of sped it up uh, a few beats per minute, and so it's actually, the pitch is up, and the beat is up uh, from what they actually played. I was thinking of trying that on some of my songs. If oh, you,
2: you mean know. so they recorded it at one tempo, and then in the studio they, they yeah. actually, yeah. oh, I did not know that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to figure out what it is so and let you know, because it's one of the songs that's got like the really driving, you know, kind of moving fast.
2: and. And that, that's all artificial, huh? <laughs> <At least>. <laughs> <laughs> this is an edge.
3: It wasn't like you know, all
2: massive change, but enough to kind of give it a slight edge. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of J- James Brown's a musical genius. You know, self-taught uh, musician, um, just heard it in his head the way he wanted it, and had a very. I, I mean, I don't have that ability. For me, playing music has always been um, uh, hard. <laughs> it, it hasn't ever come easy for me. I had to work really hard to even make do the, half the stuff that I can do. Um, so, people who can just like, you know, you fear the Mozarts, Beethovens of the world, they just have these full formed yeah. things in their head, and they're trying to, that's amazing to me. I don't know how the brain does that. <laughs> I would like to be struck by lightning and become uh, one of these uh, savants. <laughs> <Well, laughs> so Oliver Sacks has now. that interesting. How about time? Okay, we got a few minutes to go. So. Yeah, we need to wind it down. We're winding it down, that's right.
3: You know, let, let me just say one last uh, thing about why I have some of the ideas I have which goes back to you know we all have these formative uh, periods in our careers and um, I did my PhD studying split brain patients with Mike Kazaniga and all right. the you know the studies that, that we did led to Mike's theory of the interpreter which is that the uh, our brain is constantly generating these unconscious behaviors and the role of consciousness is to interpret that and kind of tell your story and make it all make sense. So this came out of studies where we would uh, make the right hemisphere do something like stand up or scratch your hand or whatever. Uh, and so that these were, from the point of view of the left hemisphere which we could talk to, these were non-conscious behaviors. And the left hemisphere didn't, you know, you, one, that one possibility would be that the left hemisphere would be surprised that these behaviors were happening But instead, it just sort of built it into its kind of mental scheme of of what life was about. And um, so we came up with the idea that uh, one of the things consciousness does is kind of weave all these things coming out of our bodies into a coherent story. And so I wanted to, one of the things we did was we put emotional stimuli in the right hemisphere. Left hemisphere couldn't tell us what it was, but it could rate the stimulus on some kind of valence scale. So I wanted to understand how it was that a stimulus could go into the brain and its perceptual properties uh, would be processed separately from its affective properties. Um, And so the left hemisphere could tell you about the affective valence, but not about what it was. So that's why I turned to studies of rats to try and understand how these kind of unconscious uh, processes uh, could be controlled by the brain uh, and then consciousness would interpret it. So that's where I come from in all of this stuff in terms of uh, what feelings are and how they are conscious interpretations of these unconscious activities.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize I exactly. hadn't put that together that way. But now that you say that, it makes sense. Given because I did know about you uh, working with Gazzaniga. Right. Uh, I can never say his name right. I'm sorry, but Gazzaniga. You know, Gazzaniga
3: is the Italian pronunciation. <laughs> <Gizana>. <laughs>
2: okay. but yeah, you. I know. Where, so in the last few minutes here, what did what did you think about split, split brains? Because you know a lot of philosophers have thought that well maybe they you you cut the corpus callosum and it, you know there's a possibility there's two different people in there, two different yeah. consciousnesses.
3: You know, that, We had a, uh, my dissertation was really all about that. It was called, you know, like, uh, Divided Mind or something like that. Uh, And we had a patient who had the ability to comprehend language in both hemispheres but speak only in the right, uh, sorry, in the left. Hmm. Um, So we could do more complex things, like put questions in, like, who are you in the right hemisphere? And then have the left hand spell with Scrabble letters. So you know the the right hemisphere knew its name could it spell Paul, was the guy's name. So he had a self concept, right? He had life ambitions. So he wanted to be a, a draftsman or something, or uh, and uh, had a um, knew his family and all of that. So he it was clearly aware and could communicate complex concepts, even though it couldn't speak, because it had the ability to comprehend language over there. Uh, at least that was our ability to communicate with it, so it's kind of like uh, verbal self-report out of a a uh, non-speaking half-brain. So that was the first time you could say that the right hemisphere was really kind of uh, alive and well in there and able to communicate uh, complex ideas. So we put, one of the questions was, what do you want to be, you know, something like that, into the right hemisphere, and the right hemisphere wanted, if I remember correctly, wanted to be uh, a. a, a race car driver it's the left hemisphere wanted to be a draftsman.
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Divided mind indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like an amygdaloid song. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, I think I write that actually. <laughs> yeah, that will be a good one. <laughs> first, two
3: 2014, so look for it. <laughs>
2: okay, cool. Uh, so, so your view then would be that, yes, they, they have separate... They
3: can. They, uh, they can. You know, the, the problem is the most to the patients, you couldn't really interact with them in any meaningful way. I mean, they could reach into a bag and pull an apple out if you showed a picture of an apple. But you couldn't really get into complex, without language, you couldn't get into complex questions about what was in there.
2: So that's very rare for a uh, split-brain patient to have language comprehension okay. in both hemispheres, right? What was it about that person, Paul, who gave him that ability Do you know or have no idea?
3: Um, you know, it's early damage to the brain, probably.
2: Oh, so plasticity kicked in, and I saved it. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. And there
3: were there were a couple of others that they found that that uh, ended up having some language in the right hemisphere
2: as well. So, so with the, I? I know we're we got two minutes left, so let me just ask this last question. So, if if you have a split brain, uh, where the right hand side, the right side hemisphere doesn't have language, then they're not separate. They're not two. Well, no, they're, they're separate because, they're, perceptually, they're separate. You know, you put a apple. But app two consciousnesses, that. I mean, two separate consciousnesses? It was always
3: impossible to test. You know, it's the problem of verbal report, right? In the absence of verbal report, it's hard to test consciousness. And, but here you had the ability to have, um, to put verbal questions in. What we would do is we would, um, um, you know, if we had a complex question like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and so like, we would say something like, what do you want? Verbally to speak that, and then say, when you grow up, put that. Put you know, you could only. You have to flat. You have to put the information you can flash in a few milliseconds into the right hemisphere. So we'd split it up into two parts. Part of it spoken, and part of it written. And the written part would go to the right hemisphere, even though both hemispheres would hear the first part.
2: Interesting. Super cool. Yeah, that's yeah, very cool. It was just a
3: the. I think it was the ability to communicate with that silent right hemisphere that that allowed us to test it we don't really know what was going on in the nonverbal right hemispheres
2: right and you would you wouldn't want to make an excuse because language i mean it could be that that language is doing something important so that there would be, be you wouldn't want to say oh maybe because this one's conscious when we talk to it that that one
1: we can't talk to also is
3: yeah i, I my inclination is that you know language changes everything but um i have no proof of that
1: so there's the yeah. diecephalic uh... Siamese twins Abigail and Brittany they're pretty famous they've had a reality show there's been a BBC documentary about them so yeah. basically there's you know there's, now a
2: philosophy paper written about them
1: there's a pair so there's a pair of legs and they could ride uh, the bicycle I believe they have a driver they have two drivers licenses but they have to cooperate to drive Uh mm-hmm. and they've got you know cuz they have a pair of arms and um, and it's interesting that they you know they 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 both are able to speak when they Type, however, when they're when they write emails or chat with their friends on computer, they use first person pronoun. They they don't do they don't do this when they speak. When they speak, they you know they um, the 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 separate speakers use first person pronouns to 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 refer to the separate girls. But when they write, they say I you know I not we I "I, uh, I'm going to go to the party or you know "I, I just got your email and you know if you this is wildly speculative, which we do best here on this show. But if you really <laughs> wanted to stick with this language thing, super hard, you would say that on email or chat, they become a single self.
3: Or uh, they're more comfortable socially, not embarrassed, and not uh, putting down the other girl. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you're speaking, it's like you know, it's out there in the open, so the other person is hearing it. But if you're just Typing, maybe it's more
2: private. Yeah, those twins. So they have they they have uh, some interesting capabilities. Like allegedly, one twin can perceive with their eyes closed, but the other one is seeing with their eyes open.
1: (laughs) Not well. Maybe we're talking about different twins, not the ones I'm talking about.
2: Oh, I'm talking about the ones that are joined at the head.
1: Yeah, I forgot their names. That's not Abigail and Brittany. Abigail and Brittany. um, it's it's controversial whether they have any kind of uh, fusion between their nervous system and if Oh, they do, I,
2: oh yeah, I was thinking spinal. about the ones where there's a neural bridge between the
1: yeah, two a, you're, Yeah, you're a, thinking of the one Peter Langland Hassan studies where there's uh, a yeah. joint at the head. The, in
3: the split brain patient, something that was discovered really early on. This was uh, long. This was in Gazaniga's PhD work, uh, long before I was involved in this. It's called cross queuing where the uh, one side can generate kind of bodily responses that the other side can pick up on. Yeah, uh, to get the answer.
2: You know, I can put a snap or something, and then the other one will see it and, it or it or it or it. and yeah. they get information.
3: something, and they learn to work like that. So I assume that something like that has to be going on in these girls, where there's no talk within the head, right? It's right. all kind
1: that's of right. external. Yeah, so Abigail and Brittany are—they're um, on a softball team, and they're able to. Uh, they're able to swing a bat and hit a softball and so there's got to be some kind of coordination or communication that is mediated by just tugging on the skin or like uh-huh. uh, shifts shifts in their balance it, it's pretty one amazing thought, one says okay you're probably better at hitting why don't you do it <laughs> well you know only it's one brain one brain controls one arm and the other brain controls the other arm and I think the same goes for their legs That's completely
3: because, you know, yeah. normally what, what the two sides have are control of the distal muscles, not the whole arm. So in a split-brain patient, either hemisphere can make an arm movement, but only, one hem- only the opposite hemisphere can do fine control. Hmm. Same is with perception, so detailed touch perception, uh, like point-to-point perception, opposite hemisphere. But gross changes in temperature or, you know, like uh, uh, pain that is more amorphous and not detailed in terms of point-for-point specificity goes to both sides. So I'm wondering if, is it definitely one arm versus the other or? Yeah, I believe so. That'd be
2: interesting. That'd be interesting, huh. Well we're running an overtime now at yeah. this point, so we gotta let Joe go. But as always, I feel like we you know we could keep talking forever, but we gotta cut we gotta let him go. <laughs> All
1: right. Well we'll do it again sometime. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. That was okay. Thanks, super duper interesting.
2: Yeah, it's a really great conversation. Thanks, Joe. I learned a lot. Thanks.
1: Space, time,
0: mind.